This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mars has been called a spacecraft graveyard. Nearly 60% of missions have failed, their debris littering the surface. Next week, some Colorado engineers hope to defy those odds by safely landing NASA's InSight spacecraft on the Red Planet. Lockheed Martin in Littleton built and operates InSight, and Beth Buck is Mission Operations Program Manager. Beth, welcome to our program. Good morning. Thank you. Once InSight lands, it's going to measure quakes on Mars to help determine if the planet's core is hot or cold. That research will be done by other scientists. Your job at Lockheed is to build the spacecraft and get it there. Why is it so hard to land on Mars? Well, it's very, very far away, for one, and we're um, in an atmosphere that you're trying to target a very small point in the atmosphere to come through. There's all kinds of factors. You can hit that atmosphere wrong, where you end up bouncing off the atmosphere. You could end up burning up in the atmosphere if you go into the wrong place. And you're having to do this from a distance where you don't have a pilot on board. You're not getting to joystick this from the ground either. We have one-way light delays, so we don't, this is essentially in the blind during while it happens. Um, and uh, you know, no human has set foot there just yet. So there's things that we still don't know about the planet, which is why we're going there. Okay, let's unpack all of those challenges. <laughs> so first of all, the distance. Remind us how far we are from Mars at this moment. I know that that varies, right, from time to time. It does. And uh, I'll have to apologize that it's not coming right to my head of where we are now. We are actually a little closer than usual. This summer, we were at our closest point to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've traveled over 300 million miles to get there. But that's not exactly a direct route in terms of how close we are. But many, many millions yeah, of miles absolutely. away is the crossing, if you will, to Mars. You talked about its atmosphere, that if you approach it wrong, you could actually bounce off of it. Yeah. So what is the quality of the Martian atmosphere? Help us understand that. Well, the atmosphere is a lot different than Earth, but there still is some atmosphere there. We've certainly been losing that atmosphere based on um, solar winds. In fact, we have another spacecraft there, Maven, as part of the um, studying of what has happened to the atmosphere over time to see what could happen to other planets. Um, but that atmosphere itself still has enough thickness that as we come through that, that will help slow us down. So we're going to purposely use that as part of that to slow us down. Um, but it is, again, a very, very, um, you know, you're coming in um, supersonic and you're going to heat up. And so that in itself is a, an issue, too. You're coming in at supersonic speeds. Right, okay. right. And then relying on the atmosphere to slow you down, but not too much, I suppose, to the point where you bounce back. Okay. And then you talked about not being able to joystick this. I like using joystick as a verb. Uh, why, why can't you joystick this? In other words, it all has to be automated. Right. It is automated um, ahead of time. It is a very precise sequence um, that is one item after another that has to continue to happen. But the biggest reason there is the fact that it is so far away from us that the light distance, the time for a signal for that we send a command to get there is about eight minutes right now based on where we're at. This entire event is seven minutes long. So the fact that we couldn't send it and be continuing to change that, we wouldn't have the data back real time. Okay, so I'm told that Mars is 91 million miles away. Thanks. And the idea, the idea there is the communication lag is, is those many minutes long. I've been thinking a lot about this. And I've been imagining myself in my car, okay, thinking I'm about to make a left turn. Except what if I had to make the left turn seven minutes after? Or I, th that delay was seven minutes between the turn and when the message came. That, that just makes the job so much more difficult. Uh, and I, I realize you're not 
joysticking into this. But that means you have no immediate communication with this thing. Right. There, there's, I mean, some data we may get. There's some experimental spa- satellites, little small CubeSats that have flown along with us on our way to Mars. Those, um, the Marco missions, may be able to provide us some real-time telemetry as we go in. Otherwise, we'll be recording that. And then we'll, we'll still st- get some pings as we go along to kind of know where we are in that sequence. But again, it's going to be delayed. By the time we get it, it'll already be on the ground on Mars. Oh, how are your nerves? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing okay most of the time. Um, the team's really well prepared. Uh, the spacecraft has been performing wonderfully, um, so that you know helps build our confidence. But it is hard, and um, that seven minutes, we call it the seven minutes of terror. So uh, we'll anxiously be waiting to hear that we're on the surface and ready to go. Right, seven minutes after it lands. <laughs> this is not your first rodeo. Lockheed has built 11 spacecraft destined for Mars. Uh, inside, I understand, is modeled very closely on Phoenix, which successfully landed at the North Pole of Mars in 08. Technology has changed so much since then. I wonder how you balance keeping what worked with Phoenix and yet incorporating new technology and insight. Right. It's a really important trade-off. We want to do proven technology as much as possible, but when there are advancements that can help us, we want to incorporate those too. So we do a very um, a risk-balance study to see whether that makes the sense. So when we have a processor now that's much faster than what it was Okay, um, kind of like Phoenix, in my iPhone for, for that absolutely, matter. Absolutely, okay. right. So take some of those upgrades that really improve things. We've got some battery cells that can help us better with the colder and longer duration that we're going to have an insight. So we upgraded those. And then we also had um, some solar cells that we ended up um, upgrading as well for when we're on the planet itself. That'll help more for dust storms, can, making sure we have the energy if we get into a bigger dust storm as well. So a few changes, but not that many. I imagine that it's solar power that fuels insight. Yes, okay. yes. There's batteries as well, but the, um, that we so we use those to recharge up the batteries. Okay. But okay, and so dust storms might get in the way of powering insight in that case. Yeah, so dust storms can end up covering those enough um, that you know, depending on how much those cover, that that can definitely be hit. That can be the end of spacecraft in some cases, um, but it's not our plan at this point. Okay. But in other words, landing is just the first obstacle. <laughs> yes, right. Or it's probably the umpteenth obstacle. It's, it's probably the, <laughs> the riskiest portion of it. But yes, there'll be uh, challenges for um, the, the entire duration we're there. We're speaking with Beth Buck. She's Missions Operations Program Manager at Lockheed Martin in Littleton, which built NASA's InSight spacecraft scheduled to land on Mars next week. Uh, So uh, when InSight launched in May, it was two years behind schedule. A 2016 launch was scrubbed because of a problem with one of the instruments, not one built by Lockheed, I should say. That delay could have canceled this mission. I mean, the fact that you're even where you are is a bit of a miracle. Yeah, that shows you, I think, how important the science is to the community um, and what they want to get back to really learn how these rocky planets are formed. So the fact that, uh, yeah, with a a delay, you can't go to Mars just every day. There's limited opportunities because you want to only use so much fuel to get there. So you want to make sure the planets are aligned in a place where you optimize that trajectory. Where Earth and Mars are close enough together that you're not sort of... Uh, having to go all the, the way around the sun or something like okay. that, right? So so you make sure that alignment. So it, the next opportunity was two years later. And in that time, um, we were able to get the instruments delivered and uh, ready to go and thankful that we, we get this opportunity. Now, I understand that you had to wait for the right season or at least know what season it would be on Mars when you landed. I don't think I knew that Mars had seasons. It does. It does. It's Their, their year is about two Earth years. Um, but yeah, they have different Earth... Um, 
um, different seasons as well. Um, I think one of the seasons that we're more interested in is the dust seasons. Uh, we're just ending that dust season right now as we land. So there's a few things we've done um, to make sure that our um, path in will be protected from that. But uh, right now, the Mars weather looks really well that we're um, coming out of all the dust seasons. Nothing else predicted here. Um, the atmosphere is seems to be calming down. So that's good news for us. Are those the seasons on Mars dust and not dust? <laughs> that's kind of the, <laughs> that's some of the biggest portions of it. But uh, but there is, you know, it's still a, a fall, summer type um, thing that we'll talk about, too. But dust seasons are definitely um, part of the biggest concerns we have. What would you say is the most exciting part for you? Oh, boy, I am. Um, I, I love it all, really. The, the, the fact that we are getting to um, continue to expand what we know about our universe um, and that we're pushing that to find new things out there and we get to be a part of it. I mean, how many people get to say that they're operating spacecraft at multiple different planets? Uh, it's just it's awesome. Not many, I imagine, <laughs> although more in your world. Thank you for being with us. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks and for having us. Would you be willing wish to... wish us good luck next week. <laughs> I will wish you good luck. And I'm wondering if you'll come back on the show for an update. Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. I hope it's with good news. Absolutely. Beth Buck of Lockheed Martin in Littleton, which built the NASA spacecraft InSight and is flying to Mars. Touchdown on the Red Planet is scheduled for November 26th around noon. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science is having a watch party, or you could catch it online at nasa.gov. Colorado may have seen some snow recently, but drought has made its mark. The extinct town of Iola on the western slope is a particularly stark symbol. Iola had been deep underwater since Blue Mesa Reservoir near Gunnison was filled in the 1960s. But the water level is so low that remnants of the town have reappeared. Historical researcher Dave Primus of Western Colorado University joins us. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. appreciate you having me on. This year, the water level in Blue Mesa has dropped to historic lows. I'll say this is Colorado's largest body of water, and it's just 39% full now. Uh, Paint us a picture of what has emerged of Iola. Well, the reservoir is down about 85 feet from full uh, today, and uh, the Iola wasn't a very big town, but uh, a lot of the foundations, I'd say, oh, 10 or 15 foundations have appeared. Uh, you can barely see the grade to the Denver and Rio Grande uh, Railroad that went by there. Hmm. Uh, and uh, in the surrounding area, there are a lot of ranches, and so there's a lot of ranch uh, building foundations also. I mean, it was not that long ago that Iola was uh, a town. In, in other words, there have to be people alive who remember this place and for whom this is a haunting reemergence. Oh, absolutely. And I've, I've uh, been lucky to talk to several of the people that uh, grew up in the Iola area and went to school there. Uh, and uh, and I, at one of the people, Bob Robbins, uh, grew up on a ranch right across the river from there. And he and I sat in his Jeep and uh, just talked for about an hour, and he he told me, you know, I don't come here very much. Uh, it's hard, uh, and so uh, it's it's great that there are people that still remember it. Mm. Why don't we tell the story of Iola 
and it being inundated when the reservoir was filled. Uh, how was that decision made, and what was it like for the, the residents of Iola, like the one you just mentioned? Well, Iola is one of, of three towns that were submerged when Blue Mesa was built in the early 1960s. And uh, I've been told that the reservoir was threatened uh, since the 1930s, and finally in about 1958 or 59, they decided to build it. Uh, it took about uh, five years to build and another five years to fill. So in that 10-year period, uh, many people were displaced. And uh, it, it was really hard for people because they lost their livelihood. Many of them lost the homesteads that had been in the family for uh, three and four generations. And, of course, the Gunnison River Valley was really, really pretty. It had cottonwoods all along the Gunnison River. Uh, many people came from all over the world, really, to fish that stretch of river. So it was hard not only for the people that lived there, but also the people that had visited, really, since the 1880s uh, to enjoy the fishing on the Gunnison River. Okay, so you said there were other towns that were inundated when uh, Blue Mesa was created. What are the name of the other two? Uh, one of them is Savoya which is uh, Spanish for onion, which was a very small town. It had a post office. And the other one was Sapanero, which was down uh, near the near the dam site, and it's currently under about 250 feet of water still. And it was probably the largest of the three towns Sapanero was. Now, can we attribute the reemergence of Iola purely to drought, or is this also just part of how the reservoirs are being managed? Because I know there's some control over water levels. Well, it, it's certainly both. Uh, normally, in a normal water year, Iola is completely submerged, but it's also, uh, you know, at the top end of the lake. So uh, when, when the reservoir starts to drain to feed uh, other reservoirs downstream for downstream uh, uses, uh, it starts to emerge uh, first. Uh, but, you know, it's a combination of both, and, and it's all about water management all over the entire uh, Colorado River project. Is it your hope to kind of walk the, the ghostly streets of Iola? Well, I've done that many, many times in the past uh, couple of months. Okay. I have, yes. What's that like? Just uh, paint us a picture. Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, when you you first walk down to it, the first thing that strikes you uh, is a growth of alfalfa, which was interesting because a lot of the ranches grew alfalfa around there, and it's still growing uh, today. Uh, under where the reservoir was. And then the first thing that you encounter that's really poignant, I think, is the flagpole base uh, to the flagpole that was at the schoolhouse. And uh, it's completely exposed and concrete, and in the concrete are initials of the school kids uh, and several of the local cattle brands. And I've been lucky to stand there with one of the uh, people that had put his initials in there uh, back in the late 1940s. And uh, so that kind of gives you, you know, a feeling of, wow, this really was a town. And then right next to there is a big burned area where there are parts of school desks where they just took everything out of the school and just burned it. Uh, and then you walk a little bit further 
uh, down kind of the main street, and you can see the foundation of the big little store, which was the store at Iola, and also it was also standard service, and so you can see pipes coming out of the ground that fed uh, the gas pumps there. Uh, the other thing I find interesting is you walk a little bit further, and there's kind of a rock sticking out of the ground that's completely uncovered now, and historic pictures uh, show that there was a lookout tower on top of that rock, uh, and that rock is right next to the Iola Hotel Foundation. And uh, the lookout tower, if you climb up on that rock, and the lookout tower was another 10 feet above that rock, uh, you could see all over the valley, uh, you could see three or four fishing resorts, uh, several different ranches, and of course the town of Iola. And so uh, that really makes me think about, you know, this was a fun place to visit uh, yeah. in those days. Th- this is just fascinating and haunting. And I wonder if back in the day there was any effort to block construction of Blue Mesa Reservoir, or if in general people were sort of surrendered to the inevitability of it. I've asked lots of people that, and um, I think the amount of people that were displaced from from Blue Mesa Reservoir was probably only a couple hundred. And certainly they were against the reservoir, uh, and they may have tried to fight it, but I think they felt that that was impossible. In the surrounding area, say Gunnison and Crested Butte in Montrose, a lot of people looked at it as a, an economic opportunity to increase tourism because of all the fishing and so forth that would be served by a reservoir versus just a stretch of river. Interesting. Uh, and so I don't think there was a lot of opposition at the time. I just want to note that artifacts from ancient cultures were also buried by the waters of Blue Mesa, along with the developments of more modern dwellers, because you, you have uh, old-timers, I understand, Remembering Indian mounds and graves and teepee rings, just very briefly. We've about teepee rings, that, that's correct. And uh, some of them have uh, discovered uh, pots on their ranches that are now uh, covered up by the reservoir. Mm. Uh, really, for about 10,000 years, there has been human occupation in this valley. Dave, yes or no? Do you take any artifacts with you from you know, remnants of Iola when you go out there, like souvenirs? I do not. You do uh, not. For one reason, I I never do. Uh, okay. For one reason, it's on national park land, and it's very illegal to do so. Uh, and the other reason is I want other people to see them. And so if you go down there, you'll see piles of broken glass and, and other artifacts, um, you know, stacked up on foundations that other people have found and just left there for, for everyone to see, which I think is the right thing to do. Dave Primus, Western Colorado University in Gunnison, talking about the reemergence of Iola, Colorado. This is CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. 
Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. But very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Here are a few insights into eating disorders from a new book. One, our culture needs to learn to accept all body types. Two, dieting doesn't work. And three, these disorders come with a host of serious, even deadly, medical complications. The book is called Sick Enough. The author is Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, a national expert on eating disorders based in Denver. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the title of your book, Sick Enough. What does that mean? Well, People who have eating disorders fundamentally believe that they aren't sick enough to receive care and to change their behaviors. So I used the title sick enough, which is immediately recognizable to someone who's had an eating disorder or who has one in order to give them the message that whether they have five of the medical problems I talk about in this book on the medical complications of eating disorders, or whether they have one, they are sick enough to change their behaviors and to get help. And why do you think they sort of rationalize that they're not sick enough? I mean, this is part and parcel of the fact that eating disorders are not choices. They are life-threatening mental illnesses that distortion of self and body image are all a part of what makes these so serious. How do you define an eating disorder? I think people have all different definitions for what that means. Eating disorders are strictly defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual number five, the book within which all mental illnesses are defined. Anorexia nervosa is broadly defined as a body weight that is significantly low compared to developmental stage or height as an adult with a fear of food and a distortion of the body and a great fear of gaining weight. Some patients vomit or use laxatives, some purely restrict calories. Atypical anorexia nervosa is a diagnosis that is poorly named because it's actually much more common than anorexia nervosa. And the people have all the same behaviors and distortions and torment. They just don't happen to be in visibly underweight bodies. Then in bulimia nervosa, people binge on food and then purge to get rid of it. And in binge eating disorder, people binge on an excessive amount of food without being hungry for it. And they end up feeling very guilty afterwards, but they don't use compensatory behaviors. As we said, a major focus of the book are the medical problems that come with eating disorders. Will you talk about some of those? Absolutely. When somebody doesn't eat enough food, 
The part of their brain that I call the cave person brain, which is the part that runs us as a mammal, kicks in. And the cave person brain says, oh my goodness, you're starving. I'll save you. So it slows our metabolism. It changes our digestion. It changes the way our brain works and our hormones and our skin, everything else. And then causes a lot of problems that can get in the way of people's recovery. Like what are the problems with a slower metabolism? Um, you know, what happens to your skin? One example is what happens to your heart. When your heart is part of a body system that's not getting enough nourishment, and I'm not talking crazily starved, I'm just talking inadequate energy intake, your cave person brain just like a bear in hibernation gives the signal, we want to spend fewer calories. And so it may slow the heart rate at rest in order not to spend extra calories on an extra beat of the heart. But then when somebody gets up and moves down the hallway and back, their heart rate goes faster because their muscles are malnourished, including their heart muscle. So we see low heart rate, for instance, in starvation changes regardless of body shape and size. Another example would be that digestion slows. When people aren't taking in enough calories, their stomach stops emptying food normally, a process called gastroparesis. That can leave people feeling really full and bloated and nauseated. And of course, the eating disorder feels that medical symptom and goes, oh, my intuition is telling me I shouldn't eat anymore. Mm. And it actually perpetuates the cycle. One thing I found very interesting is uh, how you approach this issue of, of weight stigma. You're right. You can't necessarily tell by looking at someone whether they're healthy or unhealthy or if they have an eating disorder. So, you know, that goes against, I think, conventional wisdom. That's so right. And it's one of the parts of the book and of my current clinical work that I'm most passionate about, this greater engagement in social justice. So here's the, the state of the standard science right now is that people in larger bodies are called overweight and obese, which labels them as having a medical problem, even if they have no medical problems due to their body size. They are told their body and their eating is the problem and that if they just eat less and move more, their body size will decrease and they will be healthier. But isn't it true if you're at a lower weight, I mean, that you are healthier in terms of your heart and some other medical issues? There are correlations between higher body weight and certain medical problems, of course. But here's the reality. You cannot actually tell whether someone is healthy or not by looking at them. Because in my clinic, I have people who could be on the covers of magazines who are profoundly unhealthy physically and emotionally because of what they're doing to their bodies to have their body look a certain way. Right now, health in our society is very narrowly defined as generally reflecting someone who is white, thin, heterosexual, able, and well-educated. So instead of judging people by their size, and physicians do this all the time, for which reason 
I regard medical professionals as an oppressor class to people in larger bodies. There's a new philosophy called health at every size or haze. It's new to me. It was developed in the 90s by therapists and social justice advocates who wanted something different for individuals in larger bodies, some of whom had binge eating disorder, most of whom didn't because they're not directly correlated. It encourages patients to nourish themselves for joy and for satisfaction with a wide variety of foods, eating moderately of food types that might be considered junk food, but certainly not cutting them out altogether because that generally only triggers the desire to eat those foods more. It encourages people to move for joy and within their level of ability and interest. When people do this, that's where real health comes from. So if you can't necessarily tell by looking at someone, obviously there are clinical tests to tell whether someone has a heart problem or other problems. So that's how you really look at the health of a person. I do. When it comes to my patients in larger bodies, I don't even check body weights. It is not a vital sign that tells me good information. What I do is listen to them. And I start my conversations with them by asking them, what are your goals and values? What I find then is that if I've got a patient in a larger body who has medical complications like diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea and fatty liver and high cholesterol, rather than tell them what they've been told in doctor's offices, which has shamed them and implies that, oh, it never even occurred to me to eat less and try to lose weight because many of them have been trying to do that their whole lives. Instead, we shift the focus. I have patients who within six to 12 months, they've resolved their diabetes. Some people who were on 300 units of insulin a day are now completely off insulin. Some people who could barely walk 10 steps in their home are now able to go sledding with their daughter or hiking with their son. It works in ways that diet culture, the way medical practices are invoking it across the country, hasn't worked. Now, let's talk about the medical community. I assume you get some pushback from folks in the medical community that they think weight can cause severe health concerns and you need to be direct about it. Yeah. I get a lot of puzzlement from the medical community and sometimes from the broader community when I talk in this way. People like to construe a weight-inclusive perspective as being one where there are no rules, I must be espousing junk food for everyone, and of course I'm not. Instead, what I tell them is the way we're doing this topic as a country isn't working. And furthermore, it's causing harm. So what if we stopped doing the thing that's not working and causing harm, and instead we focused on behaviors? Instead, we said, I want you to eat all of the food you need to nourish your body. Ideally, I would like to get you in with a dietitian who is a health at every size focus as well. And let's see if we can change the behaviors, because I'm convinced that your health outcomes will follow. And so far, it universally has. And you also say in the book that dieting almost never works. Dieting doesn't work. The reason dieting doesn't work is that that cave person brain, 
that part of our brain that runs us as a mammal and was evolved to protect us from starvation, keeps dieting from working. Evolution works, you know. We evolved in a time of scarcity, and we only recently in human development have found ourselves in a time of consistent plenty for the most part. So our cave people brains are still active. They defend our body weight. They drop our metabolism. They try to get our weight back to where it was before the quote-unquote famine started, plus some in case you should go into the next famine. So body size and image, um, and I'm thinking about families and how they focus on food, should body weight be a taboo topic at home? Yeah, actually. Rather than focus on our children's and our own body size and shape in our homes, we should be focusing on food and movement behaviors. Not in terms of strict black and white, right and wrong, but in terms of we're going to move our bodies because it's joyful to move our bodies within our ability and interest. And because that keeps us strong to do the things that we love in this family. And that food should not be posed as good for you or bad for you, but ideally as something that we consume together as a family with our own personal cultural traditions and food traditions optimally enjoyed together in a mindful way rather than under, you know, distractions. And that sweets or carbs, all of these things need to be part of our lives because they're all around us. To restrict them is to make them delectably desired rather than if we eat them moderately, we just enjoy ourselves and enjoy what our bodies were meant to do. This is the way in addition to many other things that we prevent eating disorders. Because well-meaning parents might feel, oh my gosh, you know, I can tell my kid is gaining some weight or my kid is getting teased at school about their weight. I'll focus on it with them and help them. And the answer is, in their homes, children need to feel unconditionally loved and accepted. Imagine all of the people listening to this. If your parent had always given you the message that your body was just perfect exactly as it was and that you were loved. It's very interesting how many of us have a different experience in our families of origin with casual body comments, whether it was pressure to be thin, pressure to be muscular, whatever it might have been. Instead, we can break that cycle. It doesn't mean we focus less on health. It's just that we know now that health isn't improved by body shaming anybody. What about access to treatment? Does everyone have access that needs it? No, people do not have access to treatment that they need. And that is one of the great tragedies of eating disorder care, whether on the medical, the psychological, or the nutritional side across this country. Even people with terrific insurance, which many don't have, may not be able to access professionals who have expertise and that is a source of great frustration and despair for patients. I can't pretend to say that I have the answers, but it's one of the reasons that I wrote this book. Because while not everyone can access care, they can have a resource 
that they can read, that their loved ones can read, that they can bring to their doctor, who as long as they have curiosity and openness, will benefit from reading it, even if they've never particularly become an expert in eating disorders themselves. Jen, thanks for joining us. Andrea, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani is a national expert on eating disorders based in Denver and the head of the Gaudiani Clinic. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about her new book, Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. Across Colorado, voters in the recent election said yes to treating mental illness. CPR health reporter John Daly explains. Near the foothills of Larimer County, Lori Stolen points to a large undeveloped parcel. The county owns like 320 acres right here on this plot of land. Stolen is the county's behavioral health project director. This is where the county will build a new $25 million treatment and detox facility. It's all possible after voters passed a quarter-cent sales tax hike that raises $15 million a year. Stolen says that will pay for the building and a variety of services. I absolutely think that this will save lives. At a nearby coffee shop, Stolen describes local realities. Larimer County has one of the state's highest suicide rates. 90% of county jail inmates have substance abuse problems. And she says the county could save millions if people just got treatment. Mental illness and substance abuse have been talked about at a high enough level that, you know, people starting to understand that these are true chronic health issues and that we need to do more. 11 cities and counties had tax measures on the ballot related to mental health. Some say that's a record for Colorado. All but one passed. In Larimer County, Stolen says the strategy involved a detail-oriented campaign. We went on a very strong and very broad and very robust year-and-a-half public awareness campaign, reaching all corners of of the county. Two years ago, a similar proposal narrowly failed. But this time, proponents told voters specifically where the money would go. The campaign explained that treatment works and recovery is possible, but it's not free. The push described the costs of mental illness and lost earnings, absenteeism, and reduced productivity. We've had no shortage of press coverage. Stolen shows off literature spotlighting stats like how every dollar spent on addiction treatment brings four to seven dollars in reduced health, crime, and criminal justice costs. Stolen says 62 percent voted yes. Being a wise steward of taxpayer dollars, we know that we will have a very strong return on investment for investing in treatment services. The major organ of the body that we're starting to pay more attention to is the brain. And mental illness and the addictions are brain diseases. That's Fred Garcia, a campaign volunteer and behavioral health consultant. He served in the Clinton White House as deputy director of National Drug Control Policy. Garcia says mental health services in the state were once better funded, but money started to dry up after voters passed tax limits in the 90s. Due to uh, Tabor, I think we have slipped a lot during the uh, last 20 years. This year, statewide ballot measures to raise taxes for transportation and education failed. But Andrew Romanoff, president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado, says local mental health-related measures fared better. I'd say this is a watershed moment. I I can't remember a time when so many communities went to the ballot to say, please help us address mental health. 
Tax increases passed in Adams, Arapaho, Boulder, Douglas, Jefferson, Larimer, Pitkin, San Miguel, and Summit counties. Some focus more on treatment and prevention. The revenue sources include marijuana taxes, mill levies, and sales taxes. Romanoff says many voters backed local initiatives because they know someone who has struggled. When you look across the state, what you see is a lot of communities stepping up and saying, we need to address this crisis. It's much cheaper to prevent or treat mental illness than to ignore it or to criminalize it. For many Coloradans, success for mental health funding at the ballot box was personal. Addiction is real. Mental health is real. And without the help, we're in trouble. Eric Bowers was one of many people who made their personal stories public. He supported the Caring for Denver campaign, talking about his struggles with addiction, PTSD, and a lack of treatment options. It's hugely emotional to see that uh, all the support from everybody showing that they want to save lives. Denver voters approved a measure that will generate $45 million a year. Eric Bowers was elated it passed. Uh, To see that people see us more than just addicts. To know that people see us as humans who want help and need help as well. Man, I didn't think people cared that much. For Bowers, the results tell the story. Nearly 70% of Denver residents care enough to raise their taxes to help. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Now's your chance to see Haute Couture, worn by Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe, and Grace Kelly. The Denver Art Museum hosts the new exhibition Dior, From Paris to the World, It's the first big Dior retrospective in the U.S., and it features seven decades of decadent looks. Christian Dior exploded onto the fashion scene in the late 1940s. Christian Dior really did a big statement, a revolution, with his new look. Curator Florence Muller is going to help us understand that revolution and what it was a departure from. The trends were still about the silhouette of the war, you know, which was very masculine, very boxy, with these big shoulders. Uh, He reinvented femininity through a line, very curvy, very charming, very romantic. And suddenly you had back the thin waist, natural hips. It was really linked with this idea of the world that was rebuilding after the the Second World War. Muller put together a Dior exhibition in Paris last year, but she says her vision for the Denver show was different, a focus instead on Dior's expansion into the Americas and dresses worn by his clients here. Muller says the American fashion press went crazy over Dior's first collection, particularly the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar. She has invented the expression, the new look. And then she called all the American buyers and she said, you know, there is something happening in Paris. It's crazy. You have to buy Christian Dior. And suddenly, in minutes, he became famous. There are just over 200 dresses in the Denver show. There are many that were never exhibited. Like a pale blue taffeta evening gown with a certain airiness. I call it a cloud. <laughs> and it was worn by Mrs. Firestone, who was one of the most famous uh, clients of Christian Dior in the 50s. That's Elizabeth Park Firestone, as in the tire company. She was a socialite. She was organizing beautiful parties and, and dinners. And she was a fan of the blue. And very often she was asking to change the color of the dress, to have them all in blue. 
Christian Dior died young at 52, meaning he was only at the helm of his fashion house for 10 years. For this show at the Denver Art Museum, curator Florence Muller constructs a story of the brand over time, how Dior's vision endured and evolved as subsequent directors took over. There are pieces by Yves Saint Laurent. He was the first to run the label after Dior's death. He uh, really invented a, a new way of shaping the feminine body. By capturing the energy of the 1960s. In the late 80s and early 90s, there were Gianfranco Ferre's postmodernist collections. Then in 2016, the house's first female director, Maria Grazia Curie. You'll see a number of her pieces in this exhibition. And Maria Grazia Curie is really speaking about the powerful woman, this idea that a woman can be powerful and also very beautiful and very feminine. For Muller, this isn't just about seeing pretty clothes. She says fashion, with its intense artistry, belongs in major art museums. We have a whole section on the know-how, all the process, and they will understand that it's really difficult. And it's one of the reasons why uh, fashion is a form of art. This is also one of the goals of the exhibition, uh, to show that it's a serious work. Muller says her goal for the show is to make you feel like a private customer of the House of Dior. Dior from Paris to the World is at the Denver Art Museum through March 3rd. Look up in a certain Aurora neighborhood, and you might notice a thin, clear line running atop streetlights and telephone poles. It came to our attention through Colorado Wonders, and CPR's Sam Brash did some checking. Okay, I'm here in Aurora, and I found if you walk beneath the line, you'll more or less describe a square. The piece of monofilament zigs back and forth across one street, makes three hard turns at major intersections, then connects back to where it started. The reason for this high wire act is where I am now, a synagogue, the Ower Avner Community Center of Colorado. I sit in on the synagogue's afternoon prayers. It's inside an old office building. Ornate rugs and tapestries dress up the gray walls and the fluorescent lights. Afterwards, I speak to Leo Rafaelov. It's his job to maintain the line that encloses about a square mile around the synagogue. Basically what I do, I just drive around and make sure the wire is up there. I took this upon myself because, you know, I know exactly how people feel when they have no eruv. Did you catch that? An eruv. That's the Hebrew name for the fishing line. Think of the loop as a loophole, a way around the strict rules for Shabbat, or the Jewish Sabbath. One rule forbids anyone from carrying something from a private home into a public space, which creates problems. Let's say... I want to go out from from my house to the synagogue. So I, I myself have a newborn child. So with this newborn child, I have to carry him. Under a strict reading of Jewish law, that's not allowed. Newborns would have to stay home on Saturdays. Then my wife would be home all day, all day on Shabbos and just be sitting there, you know. Oh, it sucks. There's an exception to this rule, though. Jewish scholars say any space enclosed by walls counts as a private domain. That's great for Orthodox Jews living in walled cities like Jerusalem, but stone enclosures aren't really an option in Aurora. So big rabbis, they allow to put wires, and we consider those wires on top as, as walls. 
In a way, the line transforms public space into an extension of someone's home, allowing people to walk to Shabbat services or bring food to neighbors. But it only works if there isn't a break in the line. Sometimes from the storm, which happens in the wintertime a lot, the snow just brings the wire down. Sometimes there's car accidents, somebody ran into a pole. When that happens, the community often rents a bucket truck and fixes the line themselves. It's a small effort compared to what it took to originally erect the line about two years ago. The synagogue had to get permission from the city of Aurora, the Colorado Department of Transportation, and XL Energy, which owns the streetlights. Rabbi David Arayev oversees the synagogue. He says that effort was well worth it. We give them opportunity to women, especially to women, to come with stroller every Saturday. And it's a big help that people can enjoy and be part of the community, prayer. I meet Rabbi Arayev at his home, where he's watching two of his five young kids. He says dozens of Orthodox families have moved to the neighborhood since the Eruv went up. And they're not just moving for religious reasons. There are three other Eruvs in Metro Denver, but housing is just cheaper in Aurora. There's a personal complication for Rabbi Arayev, though. He was assigned to the synagogue by Chabad, a Hasidic sect that has stricter views of Eruvs. I'm not using by myself the Eru because Chabad did not believe the Eru. And always I need to ask from people, please, can you carry my, my kids, you know, home? So that means you don't carry things on Shabbat from a private home to a public space? Exactly. I'm not carry. And people know that I'm Chabad. So while he doesn't personally use the A-roof, he sees it as necessary. Because if you're not going to allow this here, people are not going to connect anyway. That's, we have to do something. In other words, fishing line might not be the perfect religious solution, but it might be what it takes to tie a community together. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. All right, what do you wonder about in Colorado? Let us know at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders, and we'll find out for you. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.